Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Welcome back. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, October 7th. As the threat of wildfire grows in Colorado, so does the likelihood of mass evacuations. Perhaps no one knows this better than the survivors of last year's Marshall Fire. In the first part of KUNC's new series, Fire Risk, Brittany Cronin reports on how the Marshall Fire has prompted changes to how these communities evacuate. Allie Hopper lived in Sagamore, one of the first neighborhoods the Marshall Fire reached. Like a lot of people, she expected that if she were in harm's way, someone would alert her. So when she saw a plume of smoke blanket the sky, Hopper called 911. She says twice she was told she was not in an evacuation zone. And then my younger daughter came running up the stairs and said, Mom, Mom, there's a police officer who keeps on driving around the neighborhood saying, get out of your house, get out of your house. And I was like, okay, it's time to go. Hopper grabbed her two daughters and their dog. They ran out to the car. By that time, we were all like covered in soot and black, like my teeth had ash on them, my the whites of my eyes. When I looked in the rearview mirror, like everything was just covered in soot. More than 37,000 people evacuated their homes in just a few hours that day. Many evacuees and first responders say there were so many close calls, they don't know how they made it out alive. As a result, emergency managers are making changes. Like Steve Silberman, he's the 911 director who oversees evacuation alerts for Boulder County. I think we are way better off now in our community is than we were prior to the Marshall Fire. And we learn more from each incident and we make changes from what we learn. Big change number one is that the county now has pre-designated evacuation zones. Each zone is a neighborhood or a set of streets that evacuates together. This means emergency responders will no longer spend time mapping out those areas in the middle of an emergency. Instead, they can order evacuations more quickly and efficiently. Silverman says the foothills already had these zones. Because that's where all of our wildfires have been, historically. That wasn't to say we weren't going to do it for the flats, we just hadn't gotten there yet. This work was completed for the entire county in August. Another lesson from the Marshall Fire was the need to beef up the county's emergency alert system. Because a lot of people say they never got an alert that day. So big change number two is that the county can now broadcast emergency alerts. The kind that pop up on your phone, even if you're just driving through the area. Like an amber alert for fire evacuations. This new system was finalized in April and covers the whole county. And the third big change is that during an evacuation, the county will post a map online that shows which neighborhoods have been told to go. This is a big deal. On the day of the Marshall Fire, many evacuees say it was tough to get any information. The nice thing we have now is the second we push send, for an emergency notification, it publishes to the web and everybody can see, am I in that area, am I not? And we immediately can get better information in the hands of the people that really need to know. Mike Chard is the director of Boulder County's Office of Disaster Management. He says in a fast-moving emergency, people need to be ready to evacuate without official warning. The bottom line here at all this is don't wait for the alert to take action. If you see smoke, you smell smoke, you're worried, get out go to a place where it's safe, and then figure out what's going on. Don't wait for the order to go. 
In fact, that's what many Marshall Fire evacuees did, like Tanya Summeru in Louisville. She saw smoke and immediately started texting her neighbors and other moms to get out. There are a lot of these stories of neighbors helping neighbors. It's amazing no one in my neighborhood died. It is such a blessing, but it's, it's a stroke of luck. Now that we know this danger exists, it should never be such a close call again. It's not just about getting out alive. Samaru and other residents say that a better evacuation process would have given them more time to make tough decisions, to grab a pet or a wedding ring or even a coat. Brittany Cronin, KUNC. Homeowners in Boulder County are finally starting to rebuild nine months after the Marshall Fire devastated the area. Many residents are constructing their new homes using fire-resistant techniques. In the second installment of our three-part series, Fire Risk, which focuses on how northern Colorado communities are adapting to the threat, KUNC's Lee Patterson reports on the effort to build fire-safe homes. At Cooper Building Group in Louisville, the same clients come in for a meeting every Friday to talk over building plans. Heidi Newland is an architect and co-owner of the firm. These panels go a little bit more contemporary versus like you're wanting that a little more farmhouse style. They're checking out a large sample of tan siding. It comes in a lot of colors. It can be used vertically or horizontally. But most importantly, as Merrick Mays, co-owner and contractor points out. It's, it's a class A fire-rated siding. Class A is the highest standard, meaning it would be very slow to burn. And, and I think the question is just, is it fireproof or fire resistant, but it won't be wood. In deciding to rebuild after losing their home, doing it in a fire resistant way is a top priority for clients Mark Wiranowski and his wife Melissa Lockman. I think that this process has helped me to begin to feel like we could live in this neighborhood again and feel safe. An interest in fire-resistant construction is emerging all over Boulder County, on Facebook groups, at community meetings, and with builders. As fire risk persists in the area and regular evacuations continue, many residents are motivated by never wanting to lose a home again. How much of your business now focuses on fire-resistant building and remodeling? All of it. And was that the case before the fire? Oh, no. These days, they've been focusing on materials for windows, decks, and roofs that best withstand high temperatures. Clay or tile roofs, for example, are very fire resistant, but Newland says they're also very expensive. We've been trying to do a thicker shingle, a longer lasting shingle that's not going to burn quite as fast. Mays says figuring out how to do this work, especially for clients on a budget. So it's been a crash course. <laughs> but evolving too. We just found out like yesterday, I think, about these new vents that close up when they get hot. Vents. For a fire safe home, this one is a biggie. Chris White is a wildfire risk data manager with Precisely and advises homeowners and developers on fire resistant construction and planning. We see a lot of houses burn from the inside out because embers get in there and they fester for hours. Research suggests that the vast majority of homes burn down because embers get inside, not because massive flames take over the house. And so what's really important is to create, a, think of it as like a hardened shell around the house. And that hardened shell cannot have any gaps in it. Gaps like the vents in your attic, roof, and crawl space. 
homeowners can cover those existing vents with fine mesh. New homes might have high-tech ember-resistant vents. These strategies will likely become more important over time. Wildfire risk in Colorado will grow significantly over the next 30 years, according to a recent analysis. It also found that around 180,000 homes will be at serious risk of fire over that same time period. The recent Cameron Peak and Marshall fires each destroyed hundreds of homes. So if the house was made out of fire resistant, uh, then it gives us a little more time to try to get resources there to help us uh, fight the fire. Louisville's Fire Chief John Wilson has made recommendations to the city council. Now, is it practical? Uh, that's a whole different story. Because fire survivors, Wilson says, are already struggling. And many residents from Louisville and Superior are facing an additional rebuilding challenge. Homeowners associations that require wood fences. Are you Katie? Yeah, I'm Katie. Nice meeting you. Katie Swobodarini's house in Superior has extensive smoke damage, but the home is still standing. Most of her wood fence burned down. I would say two-thirds of it's gone. Behind her house, some of the fence is left. Her theory is that firefighters kicked down and sprayed pieces of it to stop the fire from spreading to the home. We didn't know until now that they were literal fuses attached to our houses. According to new research from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they can be rapid conduits for fire, especially when two fences are back to back or lined by wood mulch. But in Swoboda Rini's neighborhood, wood fences are the norm. From the backyard, several are visible on nearby properties. That's new fencing there, that's new fencing there. All wood, um, and it's all going back in wood. The HOA might let them use a different material. If not, the backup plan is to go with a wood fence that connects to the house using a fire-resistant material like wrought iron. This type of five-foot buffer is a general best practice. No combustible materials within five feet of a home. If this happens again, they aren't going to be there to exacerbate the issue like they did this time. Heidi Newland and Merrick Mays at Cooper Building Group in Louisville are completely avoiding wood fences in the new homes they're constructing. They are motivated by loss. 18 homes that they built or remodeled burned down in the Marshall Fire. This is what we do for a living. We build a relationship not only with the homeowners, but their home. You know, we know their home better than they do, actually. Just to, to see so many gone is just heart-wrenching. They've decided to keep working with fire families until these communities are built back. We are obviously builders. We're action people. And so I feel fortunate for that I know I can do something. Nine months after the Marshall Fire, the team broke ground on their first rebuild last week. The house will have fire-resistant features such as fiberglass windows, a metal garage door, and cement-based siding. Lee Patterson, KUNC. While some fire-impacted communities in northern Colorado rebuilt their homes, other residents are thinking about how they can make their existing homes more fire-resistant. In the final installment of our series, Fire Risk, Lee Patterson joins KUNC's Desmond O'Boyle to talk about low-cost improvements. 
Lee, summer is over, but it's still fire season in northern Colorado. You've been talking with fire and construction experts about some of the different ways people can protect their homes. What have you learned? Well, there's a wide range, of course, you know, from simple lower cost stuff to bigger projects such as replacing your siding with something that's more fire resistant. I spoke with Brian Oliver. He's the Wildland Fire Division Chief for the City of Boulder Fire Rescue. He oversees their home assessment team, which has been really busy since the Marshall Fire. Before that incident, they'd get maybe a couple calls a week. And we instantly got, I mean, within two weeks, 250, almost 300 requests. Uh, Just got slammed with them. So when Oliver's team goes out in the field, they're doing exterior home assessments. And one of the main things they're looking around for is stuff that could ignite, stuff that embers could ignite. Mulch, piles of firewood, roofs in poor condition, places below a deck that are full of you know, leaf litter and debris, things like that. All those places where, where fuel can accumulate, so the same places that embers can accumulate. Oliver points out that dealing with some of this stuff sometimes really just amounts to household chores. Cleaning out your gutters, raking up the piles of leaves and and grass and things like that. Just all of those little maintenance things, um, a lot of people don't realize are they're doing that, you know, to make their house look pretty, but it's also helping them for fire mitigation as well. Uh, Can you talk about some of the less obvious recommendations that the average homeowner in Boulder might not know about? Yeah, so trying not to store flammable stuff on your deck, uh, underneath your deck, or on the side of your house. Um, Cloth patio furniture, for example. Or if that doesn't feel realistic, if you do have to evacuate, you bring that furniture inside. Another biggie, Oliver talked about juniper trees, and those are very common in Boulder. They propagate fire uh, very easily. They burn very hot. The other big consideration with junipers is they create a lot of embers, which then put anything, any structure or anything else downwind at a bigger risk. Um, So getting people to start removing them and pointing out and educating about the fire hazard to junipers has been a big push on, on our part. Lee, I imagine that some residents might have a difficult time getting this sort of work done. An elderly person living alone might have trouble cleaning out their gutters or removing those juniper trees. Can you tell me about some of those challenges? Well, I think broadly, many groups of people are particularly vulnerable to natural disasters like wildfires in preparing for those disasters, experiencing them, recovering from them. Um, Lack of transportation or language barriers, for example, can really make evacuating more difficult. Uh, Elderly people, particularly elderly black people, are disproportionately impacted by the air pollution associated with wildfire smoke. And lower income residents, for example, might not have the time or resources to prepare their homes, to make those homes more fire resistant. I think a good example is uh, Table Mesa Village. That's a mobile home park in Marshall, which is very, very close to where the Marshall Fire began. That mobile home park didn't burn down that day, but residents did um, suffer significant damage from the wind. So they lost siding, roofs, etc. I talked with the president of the residence co-op over there, and she said she hasn't heard of anyone thinking about making their mobile homes more fire resistant because in many cases, they're just still dealing with stuff like missing siding, busted pipes, and in some cases, even a complete lack of insurance. Lee, we know that there are funding sources to help people rebuild who lost their homes in the Marshall Fire. Are there any services in Boulder County to assist people with smaller fire-safe efforts? 
Yeah, some. There's a program called Wildfire Partners that helps homeowners prepare their houses for fire. They do home assessments, they make recommendations, and they even help people pay to get those upgrades done. The problem is that service is only available for people who live in the mountains and the foothills of Boulder County. This November, that could change. There'll be a couple of measures on the ballot this fall that would fund wildfire mitigation efforts, um, including expanding that Wildfire Partners program to the eastern parts of the county. In terms of what's available now, though, you know, I talked with a couple of fire chiefs in the area. Uh, Louisville's chief, John Wilson, for example, he said his department is way too short-staffed to actually help individual residents um, do anything to their homes to make them more fire to make them more fire ready. Similar situation in the city of Boulder. Um, Division Chief Brian Oliver points out that all of these fire safe recommendations are just recommendations. I do think we're going to have uh, an underserved population that can't afford the retrofits and can't afford the work. Oliver did say that his department, you know, between firefighting and training and home assessments, they also don't have the bandwidth to do more, but he's trying to get the funds to hire some staffers to do public outreach and to work on setting up some funding sources to um, help people get the help they need. Thank you so much, Lee. You're welcome. You can find the complete series, Fire Risk, on our website, kunc.org. Being a first-generation college student can be challenging. For a lot of them, the main concerns are not having enough money for tuition, lack of support, and even language barriers. Joining me today is Yahaira Hernandez, a senior at the University of Colorado, Denver. She's a first-generation student who is using social media to help other students like her succeed. Yahaira, thanks for being here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here. Yahaira, you are the first in your family to go to college. Why did you decide to attend CU Denver? What struggles have you had and how are you overcoming them? So I think with being a first-gen individual, I think it's really hard to connect with other people like staff or resources that are available for college students. So I definitely started getting more involved on campus. I think that was majority of my struggle because I just didn't know the resources that were available. So once I got more involved on campus, I got to meet people and also work study positions on campus to help me be more involved. I just want to be a voice and inspiration for other um, individuals who are first gen who are kind of like timid or shy about how to go over the process. CU Denver has an Instagram account for first generation students and you're in charge of running it. How did you get involved with this initiative? What do you share on the social media platform? So I'm a McNair scholar, which means like first gen low income students that would like to do research and later on pursue their PhD. I was involved in that like around two years ago. And then I did my summer of research last summer. So from there, I got more involved on campus, but also they decided because I'm the first gen and I also know a little bit more about the campus um, resources to be in charge of the CU Denver first gen Instagram what I share is just events that are going on throughout campus and also like outside. So events that will benefit or will help the Latinx community. We have like the first gen week. So I post a lot of the different events that are going on. There's little highlights of different topics that could affect or are involved with the first gen individual overall. Also, like if you have family members who are first gen, you're yourself or not a first gen, that's totally fine. You could pass those resources to them. Why would you say Instagram is an important tool for first-generation students to connect with each other? 
I think now social media, it's what's big. Like that's how you kind of get the word around. A lot of people use Instagram and that's kind of like when you're about to start college, you want to look about the different universities, also the different events that they have, what the university posts. So I think that's a good way to get the word around of the different events, different resources, just kind of the whole vibe of the university. Not only are you a first-generation student, but you're also the child of immigrants. Your parents are from Mexico. How do you help your community and serve students with similar backgrounds? In my job as a student ambassador, um, on the tours that I have as a Spanish tours or English tours that I'm able to connect with people or prospective students or students that are transferring over, just kind of having the similar background and connecting with them and saying, hey, like I'm a Christian too. I also come from like immigrant parents. This is my journey. This is how, why I chose to Denver. And just ex- basically just connecting with them on a different level. Um, also, a lot of like my family members are seen, they see me as a role model, which is kind of a little bit of a pressure, but at the same time, they're always like reaching out to me for like questions or just wanting to see if I could schedule a tour with them or anything like that will be beneficial. You are graduating this spring with a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology. What do you plan to do next? Will you still be in charge of the social media accounts? I'll be graduating in May, so I definitely want to pursue graduate uh, school. And my number one top school right now is CU Denver, just because I kind of know a little bit more about the environment, um, and I really like it. Um, I would like to pursue more or just like keep being in charge of the Instagram, but also I could have someone who's like undergraduate and graduate kind of give like that perspective overall of like the different scholarships or just different opportunities for graduate students, but also undergraduate. What do you plan on doing with your degree? After I graduate my bachelor's, I still want to be doing my internship that I'm doing right now, which is in a police department as a victim advocate. I'm doing that for a year. And then I also want to either, if I'm not offered a job, to still be like, I could be a volunteer there, but also have a position in higher ed. Once I get my master's, I want to be able to help other individuals kind of like be like a full-time victim advocate. Is there any advice you would like to give to other students? Yeah, my advice would be uh, to ask questions, to ne- never be sorry for asking questions because always going to get far and also never give up. I know it could be hard and challenging, but just know you have your family to support you or your friends, your partner, anything like that. So never give up and ask questions for sure. Yahaira Hernandez is a first generation college student at CU Denver who is using social media to help her peers navigate school. Her future plans include pursuing her Master's of Arts degree in clinical psychology with an emphasis in mental health and continue to help other students achieve their dreams. Yahaira, thank you for your time today. Of course, thank you for having me. It started as a song about the beauty of the mountains and became an anthem for our region. John Denver's Rocky Mountain High turns 50 years old in October. KUNC's Emma Vandenindi explains the legacy of his life and his music. Denver was known for his granny glasses and his long, dirty blonde hair. He gave as much back to nature as it gave to him, and of the many things he fell in love with. One was the state of Colorado. The Colorado Rocky Mountain High. Henry John Dutchendorf Jr. had fantasized about living in the state long before he wrote songs about it. Amy Abrams is co-manager of his estate. 
She says his fantasies led him to adopt the name of his favorite city. Seemingly that name certainly was foreboding of his future in that his love of Colorado and his impact on the state became quite a part of his uh, life and career. The idea for Rocky Mountain High came when he was 27, camping at night with friends in Aspen. That was the first summer where he spent the entirety camping in the mountains, taking in all of the beauty that the state has to offer. That's G. Brown. He heads the Colorado Music Experience, a nonprofit that preserves the state's music. And notably, the Perseid Meteor Shower occurred in August, and that was one of the more spectacular events that he had ever witnessed, and Rocky Mountain High was the result. Some people found the lyrics controversial because of the word high. Some radio stations banned the song. Friends around a campfire, everybody's high. But in an interview, Denver said he just wanted to capture the experience of being in Colorado. I love the feeling that I have when I've hiked someplace up in the mountains. I'm in the middle of, of that magnificence, whether it's in the winter or the summer. And, and I know that that kind of feeling is something that is available to everybody. The song debuted at Red Rocks Amphitheater in mid-1972 and was released in October. It finally reached Billboard's top 10 in March. The song gave a new identity to the Rocky Mountain region. Brown says back then, Colorado was a flyover state and Denver was a dusty old cow town. After that song, you could go to New Zealand, tell people you were from Colorado, and they'd say, oh, John Denver. People started moving to Colorado in droves, drawn by the nature scenes in Denver's lyrics. His fans loved him. Don Hanawalt was one of them. She recently attended a memorial concert at the Colorado Symphony. In the crowded lobby, she recalled a memory from one of Denver's concerts in the 70s. I waited till the end of the show and he'd been sipping on this cup all night and I went up to the stage and asked him if I could have the cup. It was just a styrofoam cup with part brandy and part tea, but it had Denver's teeth marks on it. And I was, you know, just over the moon, <laughs> thrilled to death, so I took it home put it on my dresser and my mother threw it away. <laughs> she thought it was garbage, so. His legacy stuck, even after his death in 1997. Paul Epstein owned the Twist and Shout record store in Denver when the singer's plane crashed. Epstein said it had a huge impact on his customers. I had never seen anything quite like it. Sinatra was the closest. I had never seen all strata of society pour into the store desperate to find recordings by John Denver. Colorado commemorated Denver in many ways. In 2007, lawmakers made Rocky Mountain High the second state song. He was also the first person inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. And this year, the governor renamed a trail after the song. But Denver's Rocky Mountain High was not just for applause. Abram says it was for awareness. John felt really passionately about, you know, both the solace and the, the peace that nature could bring an individual, and also the importance of protecting our environment and sustainability in our world. His advocacy, as well as his music, continues to touch people worldwide, 50 years later. Rocky Mountain For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Emma Vandenheide. Rocky Mountain Many organizations are holding tributes to Denver, as it is also 25 years since he passed away. 
A John Denver celebration will be held in Aspen from October 5th to the 12th. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Thanks for listening. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday. Just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If there's a story you'd like to hear, send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Have a great weekend.